welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly podcast from Capacity Media on all things digital infrastructure. I'm your host, Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray and Deputy Editor Natalie Bannerman. Saf is actually hobnobbing with BT this afternoon, um, but later in this episode, we will be joined by Shamik Mishra, who is the CTO of Connectivity at Capgemini Engineering. Shamik's going to talk about the changing economics of Open Run, the state of Open Run in India, and why the industry must come together on silicon. Um, but before we hear from Shamik, it's time for the news and a roundup of the headlines. And to Africa first, where it's all changed after Vodafone Group agreed to transfer its 55% stake in Vodafone Egypt to its subsidiary Vodacom. Also in Africa, DDoS attacks increased by 300% between January and July this year when compared to 2019, while over in Indonesia, Michitel is aiming to raise 1.68 billion US dollars in its IPO, which is scheduled for later this month. And across Indonesia, Malaysia and Brazil, the World Bank's International Finance Corporation is investing 110 million US dollars in digital bridge, tower and data center projects. Speaking of data centers, the quantum data center of the future is now under development after Orca Computing won £9 million in funding from the UK government, while Open UK, the non-profit open source organization, has moved its net zero data center blueprint, promoting sustainability, to the Eclipse Foundation. Meanwhile, the Next Generation Mobile Networks Alliance has said the mobile industry needs to set itself aggressive energy efficiency targets as demand continues to grow. And infrastructure upgrades are on everybody's minds, according to some new research conducted in the UK, France and Germany. It found that telcos are planning to invest £16 million in tech and service development over the next three years. And finally, Viasat is to build a satellite-enabled community internet system covering Latin America and the Caribbean, and it's doing that with CBC and Intercor Peru. Um, but that's not the biggest story out of Viasat over the last seven days. Um, for that, we are going to go first to Alan. Alan, over to you. Thank you, Melanie. Yeah, um, it's busy week it's been for Viasat, which is based in California. Um, what's there, uh, not only is this wonderful project for Latin America and the Caribbean, but the day before or two days before, they announced a plan to merge with Inmarsat, which is based in London for a total of $7.3 billion. Um, it's interesting operate, uh, operational plan. Of course, it's got to go through the regulatory approvals. And as their satellite companies, that will be a lot of regulatory approvals in a lot of places around the world. Viasat is really a very US and Latin American oriented company. In Marsat started out as an international organization, uh, part of the UN many, many years ago. Uh, to provide satellite communications at sea, hence the name, uh, International Maritime Satellite. It's based in London, uh, uh, and it's gone through a lot of ownership. It's been a public company at one stage. It's uh, now owned by some private equity companies, uh, investors, uh, Apex Partners, Warburg Pincus, and a couple of Canadian pension funds. The Canadian pension funds really in there everywhere these days. Um, they bought it for 3.4 billion just two years ago. Uh, so basically they've doubled their money in 23 months, So, which isn't bad. Uh, if I were had my pensions with the uh, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, I'd be very pleased. Uh, my brother-in-law does because he's an Ontario teacher or former Ontario teacher. But this was uh, an interesting uh, merger plan. It basically, I think, means that Viasat, Viasat 
will totally absorb in Marsat. So they say they will keep their headquarters in London. They will keep their staff. And it basically gives Viasat a, a global presence, which it didn't have before. Um, they're both slightly unusually and slightly controversially. I guess they're reinforcing themselves against the onset of competition from the low Earth orbit, the LEO satellite companies, so the OneWeb, SpaceX, Telesat, Amazon's Project Kuiper, which we we spoke about last week, which is coming in about three or four years' time. In uh, in Marsat is uh, very much a uh, geostationary satellite company, and so is Viasat. They may have other satellite uh, orbits as well, but they're really the old school satellite. Uh, company orbiting at uh, 30 odd thousand kilometers above the equator, which gives you really good coverage, but very low latency, which is very difficult for modern communications. If you want to do uh, computer services, uh, the latency really does make it very difficult. It was tolerable in the early days, that sort of latency when you had a long echo on a phone call from Europe to the to North America. Um, and it was just part of the novelty of making international phone calls. Um, but these days, that's seen as a drawback. Um, in the last few years, geostationary satellites have been mainly used for delivering television uh, and also all, uh, backhaul for mobile signals in very remote areas. Television certainly will stay with geostationary. Backhaul for mobile is really going to go to the Leo companies over the next few years, uh, SpaceX, OneWeb, and the others as well. So uh, it's a sort of reinforced reinforcement by two slightly old tech companies. I mean, they would probably regard that as unfair, but they are really slightly old tech companies uh, in the face of competition that's building up from the new tech companies, the lower but satellite companies. So it, it'll take about a year to get through all the approvals process, maybe longer. There was a, a conference call the other day which suggested it might take as long as 18 months. Um, and but I think this might start a process of consolidation. There are a few other companies in the business. Uh, Utilsat, based in Paris, is already a great ally of OneWeb. Um, and I think, you know, if we were starting to form marriages in the satellite industry, that might be a, a quite an interesting uh, pairing. Uh, that leaves Intelsat, which is still there. It's the granddaddy of them all, or grandmother of them all. It goes back to the 1960s. Um, who knows what, where that's going to go? It is, again, very old tech. Uh, there was a proposal a few years ago for OneWeb to take over Intelsat until OneWeb uh, looked at in Intelsat's books and decided, no, this wasn't necessarily a good idea. Uh, then OneWeb went bust and re was reconstructed with support from Barty, Airtel, and from the UK government. And since then, other people have come in as investors. They've built up a nice nest egg of investment. But as for the old school geostationary satellite companies, I'm not sure what their future is. And I think we might see some more consolidation in the satellite industry over the next year or so. Melanie. 
I think we will too. Um, competition hearings um, pending. Well, we had the story last week that you were talking about with SpaceX and Swarm IoT. Um, and like you said, you know, these older companies coming together and consolidating to compete is going to be necessary with this whole new generation of satellite players coming in. I mean, what do you even do with this old technology if you don't reinvent your business model and continue to make money off it? Um, but and of course, real... they're all using the word I, the, the term IoT in, you know, uh, Viasat and uh, in Marsat are both saying, yeah, this is to make them produce a platform that's suitable for the IoT era. No doubt it is, um, but the low Earth orbit satellites are probably even better for IoT. As you just mentioned, SpaceX has acquired Swarm, which is absolutely purpose designed as a low orbit IoT, Internet of Things company. And I think investment in future in IoT and other things like that will be for lower orbit satellites. Uh, the, I think we've come to see the geostationary companies is very specialist and a bit old school. Mm, very much. Um, but one of the details there that really um, piqued my attention was when you said that the um, pension fund actually doubled their money over the course of the ownership. And I think the kind of like lasting question on this story is that how much of a role are pension funds going to play in this consolidation piece and this changing um, ownership piece in the satellite space over the next, I don't know, couple of years I'm, or so? Very much so. I mean, as we've seen in the fibre industry, the tower industry, other sectors, the, the private equity and pension fund companies, and I guess private equity, uh, funds are basically pension funds for extremely rich people, whereas the pension fund companies are pension funds for ordinary people, but they all want long-term secure ret ret uh, returns. Um, and I think this is likely, they're likely to look for very secure returns. They don't want to risk their uh, fund holders' money, their pensioners' money by indulging in speculative investments. So I suspect Consolidation for more security is probably something we're going to see more and more of. Yeah, indeed. Natalie, what's your take on this one? Um, I, th I mean, generally speaking, I think consolidation is the name of the game across the industry as a whole. So, of course, why not satellite? Um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really have much more to add than what Alan said, but it certainly doesn't surprise me. I think with all the kind of the uh, a lot of these kind of activity in, in satellite, particularly from a lot of the startup players, I think you could see you could quite easily see the, the you know, the bigger players, the SpaceX's of the world and the, you know, the Amazons and the in Marsat's continuing to buy up these these small uh, smaller companies who are doing a lot more um, innovative work. It doesn't really surprise me, to be honest. Yes, and it is the innovation that they're buying, isn't it? Not just, um, yeah, the innovation gets acquired, but then the older companies consolidate so that they can compete with the innovators. It's, uh, hmm, interesting. Um, but Natalie, um, your story for this week kind of follows a consolidation theme as well, um, because it follows on from a corporate agreement between two players in Ecuador, well, who are active in Ecuador um, last month. Um, but now there's money involved and dollar figures and stuff. So tell us what's happening. Yeah, so um, Ufanet, who is the Spanish-based telco, um, they actually met with the president of Ecuador, um, Guillermo Lasso, um, and they've confirmed a $250 million infrastructure investment in the country. 
Um, so the meeting um, in attendance in the, in the meeting was Lasso, as well as the kind of Minister of Communications, uh, the Minister of Production and Foreign Trade, as well as the Minister for Foreign Affairs, um, and actually formed part of a two day visit, which was actually aimed around um, encouraging more European investments in Ecuador, um, which all kind of comes under a wider strategy for the company uh, country, which is called the uh, the more Ecuador in the world, the more world in Ecuador. Uh, plan. So as such, Ufanet will make an initial investment of $150 million in Ecuador. They will partner with um, Ecuadorian um, telco uh, Nedatel, which is the uh, partnership that you mentioned previously. Um, and the company also has additional funds of a further $100 million, which will be implemented over the coming years. Um, Worth noting, the plans have been supported by Ufanet's shareholders, which is made up of um, Sinben um, and um, the multinational NL. Uh, they've been a little bit light in terms of what those funds will actually be dedicated to, you know, before that will be, you know, a data center subsea, fiber, satellite, what have you. Um, but it is set to uh, not only support the development of the telecoms infrastructure in the country, but also be a great source of job creation for Ecuador. So great plans all round. Um, it's always uh, a kind of a, a great story that we love kind of covering, uh, particularly in the Latin region, because we don't always get as many news stories, I suppose, as you know, compared to the kind of European or North American counterparts. But um, great move um, from the government of Ecuador, and I think really kind of aligns with um, the need for more infrastructure, I, I imagine. Uh, the last kind of 18 to, to 18 months or two years has probably played a lot into that. Yes, yeah, completely agree. Um, well, Guillermo Lasso, before he was actually elected, um, started this year, there's a lot of news coverage talking about his ICT ambitions for the country and how he's, you know, very pro-business, um, although slightly right-wing, apparently. Um, so this is all very much kind of part of his um, electoral agenda as well um, and obviously Ecuador has some huge plans in terms of ICT and there's a lot happening there in terms of data centers um, but what do you think is going to be the next step for um, for Ufinet and Nedatel? Um, I'm not too sure I mean I think this is probably um, likely the culmination of that um, aforementioned partnership whether or not they will um, kind of extend that partnership for a number of years because you know again the details have been kind of light in terms of what this and how long this investment will last they've just kind of said over the coming years I can quite easily see this partnership being expanded in you know in, in terms of its scale and possibly in terms of its investment um, you know I was reading a little bit earlier on you know about the kind of Ecuadorian market because, you know, again, it's it's not something that we write about quite frequently and it is quite a small telecom market um, and um, has quite poor fixed line infrastructure as um, as and as a result, you know, the development of fixed line broadband services has been a lot slower than some of its other counterparts in the region. Um, and also as a result of kind of like the geographical challenges in, in some parts of the country, um, you know, the cost of deploying networks in remote and kind of mountainous areas um, has also been kind of cost prohibitive. So it's very much a country where there seems to be a lot of opportunity for kind of like foreign investment. So I could quite easily see this partnership being expanded for a number of years and maybe even more money being injected into it. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I do wonder how it's going to kind of change the dynamics locally, because um, like you said, Ecuador is a very interesting market. Um, Alan, what's your take on this story? I think, we, we, as, as Natalie says, we are going to see more and more consolidation and deals. And uh, we're in a period over the last few years where there's just been a lot of 
diversification in 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 the industry. A lot more, a lot of companies set it up, and we'll still see a lot of companies set up. But we'll always then see that's always followed by a, a consolidation, a concentration of power, in, in investment coming from other places, and so on. So it's part of, I guess, I don't want to sound world weary, but it's part of what happens, and uh, we'll see more of it. I mean, it's. Look what happened in the aircraft industry, the airline industry, the car industry. It's it's how people start things and then they then they merge them and consolidate them. And telecoms is just the same, I guess. Um, it's keeps us busy, keeps us on our toes because there's always another merger and acquisition story on the horizon, <laughs> around the corner. Uh, Very true, yeah. and a growing number of IPOs as well. Mm hearing about more of those yeah i th think so though yeah, i'd be interesting to see how much of the investment in the industry or ownership in the industry is split between private equity and and shareholders um i have no idea actually it's just private equity purchases are tend to be a bit more spectacular because but then they go very quiet we see here more about the ipo Public, publicly owned companies because they have to do quarterly returns to shareholders and that's what gives us lots of information also provides opportunity for acquirers because they see all the all the data um, it uh, but it also is quite a burden on the management and sometimes they would just like not to have to do that just having a quiet meeting with their private equity partners mm, well there's um privatization decisions going on at BT at the moment. I guess we'll find out what happens there next month and if, you know, which direction they're going to choose um, by way of example from what you've just been saying. I Yes, well, I think BT's major, major uh, worry at the moment is that they get not one but two uh, acquisition attempts. Of course, Drahi is the biggest shareholder in BT uh, at the moment, which is really quite extraordinary because for a long time it was Deutsche Telekom um, and has been for about five or six years now. Uh, but they are still the second biggest. And it may be that they see that if Patrick Drahi makes a bid for BT, which seems to be, everyone seems to think it's going to ha happen, though he's one of those people that does not give interviews about things, nor would he if he were about to pounce on BT and maybe that BT sees Deutsche Telekom as its saviour. Um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting and fun um, and we will see we will see this emerge. I mean it's uh, that's a big issue of course if BT gets taken over especially by a, a non-UK company which is likely. I mean the people with the money are Patrick Drahi, who is French, or Deutsche Telekom, which is German, um, and is really pan-European. Uh, I have no idea what's going to happen. It will be an almighty battle if it does. Mm. But BT's share price has gone down and down and down over the last five years. So it's it's a it's a bargain for, and it's got a lot of technology and a lot of recurring revenue from enterprises and the likes of me. <laughs> And they also this week opened the first telecom civil engineering robotics test facility in the UK at their BT labs in Suffolk. So oh, there's, there's a lot well, I'm going to have a robot coming down my street putting fibre to the home. That'll be fun. Like, <laughs> in an electric vehicle. <laughs> like, 
As long as they get it through the right bit of wall and don't drill through the wires and the pipes. Yep. Um, well, fantastic. Thanks, guys. Um, next up in today's episode, we are speaking with um, Shamik Mishra, who is the Chief Technology Officer of Connectivity at Capgemini Engineering. Shamik, welcome to the Digital Digest and thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thanks. Yeah, we're looking forward to it too. And um, because we are talking today about a topic that has become increasingly important over the last year and a half. Um, and this ties into some news from your side that broke in September, um, and that involves Open RAN. Now, in recent months, Capgemini has joined the first commercial deployment of Open RAN in Europe with Vodafone. Um, but you've also been working with VRV Solutions on a 5G and Open RAN test laboratory. So, first of all, tell us about the test laboratory because I believe this is located in Portugal. Um, so, how's the project going, and what you working on specifically? Sure. Uh, so Open RAN, as you might be aware, are architectures that are addressing a key challenge in telcos today. So it primarily covers both virtualization of radio networks and open architectures. As you may be aware, the overall virtualization uh, bandwagon actually missed the RAN. So the, the whole virtualization that happened for the last several years primarily was done for the core networks and for the data centers, but the radio access network actually was not virtualized. So this is perhaps the first real uh, industry effort to virtualize as well as open the architectures for radio access networks. Uh, this disrupts the vendor ecosystem significantly uh, because softwareized RAN solutions are getting adopted. And when softwareized RAN solutions gets adopted, it provides fresh choices to operators. And also the fact that it has open interfaces, it allows new ways to manage, configure and maintain RAN, uh, which includes uh, leveraging AI and automation. However, as you can imagine, this requires a fair amount of system integration, testing and validation, because there are many players in the ecosystem. There's a lot of interoperability that is required, and Open RAN will have to perform at the same level as existing networks, but primarily 4G networks. So this requires investments. And as a system integration integrator, we realize that we need to ensure pre-integration and testing of such solutions. So we invested in our 5G labs and together with uh, Viavi's testing solutions, we are able to ensure tested and interoperable open RAN gear before it gets into trials. Uh, for us, this is a key step for open, uh, I would say rather global open, global open RAN deployments. Uh, our test lab is actually equipped uh, to ensure that the network equipment providers and telcos can come together and get their version of the open RAN architecture tested and validated before they go prime time. And that's the objective of the project. And it's so far it's been uh, quite an, I would say a smooth journey, but I'm sure more challenges would come up in the near future. Okay, fantastic. Well, let's move on to challenges and also opportunities here. Um, open runs kind of come to the fore over um, very much over the last 18 months or so um, with all the issues around Huawei um, equipment and particularly network security, which um, which you mentioned earlier. But can you go into detail on those security points? Well, a very good question. Actually, if you look at uh... At Open RAN, primarily, what is it about? It is about disaggregating the radio networks. Radio network com com comprises of several modules or infrastructure. So it has a radio unit, it has baseband, it has uh, it has dedicated hardware, it has orchestration, it has transport. So all of these are in a way broken apart. It's modularized, and then 
there could be individual vendors who could be providing one of the modules. So all four modules could come from four different vendors. Now this is uh, easier said than done because all of these four have to work in tandem, and that means the interfaces between them have to be secure. Now, in order to ensure security, these these interfaces have to follow a certain set of standards, uh, and these standards are now well defined, or at least it's there are certain standards still being defined, but most of the important standards are already defined. Uh, then the major challenge comes is that there are multiple different entities in the architecture, so each of them have to authenticate the other one. So it's like 10 people working in a in a in a common environment, then all of them needs to know each other through a common identity model. And that's also a problem that is being solved today. So this is what is called zero trust architecture. You don't trust anybody until you are uh, able to authenticate them. The, the third aspect is observability. I mean, currently, if everything is inside a box, the operator can't actually find anything or even know what's going inside the box. What OpenRAN does is that it splits open the box and then and then there are small modules everywhere. So there is better observability for the network itself. So we can actually visualize the network better. We can actually identify possible security lapses much earlier than it starts to make an effect on the network. So in a way, the overall security approach is much more open and open doesn't mean it introduces vulnerabilities. Open means better monitoring and better uh, abilities to to solve the problems. So I think from a security standpoint, open RAN has the necessary infrastructure. It's just about implementation and testing that before it gets uh, gets into live and prime time. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, well, now OpenRAN is already reshaping the vendor landscape, um, and we're even now seeing politicians getting involved for obvious reasons. Um, it's happening here in the UK and elsewhere around the world. Um, but when it comes to the policy decisions being made um, in all markets, and considering everything we've already discussed, what's your message for these policymakers, and what do you believe they should be considering? Indeed. A very good question. In fact, Open RAN Policy Coalition was formed uh, some time back to promote open and interoperable RAN. Uh, policymakers do need to back solutions that promote larger ecosystems and drives innovation and ecosystems which are targeting global adoption. I think policymakers needs to back such solutions. Uh, these are not siloed individual solution, but rather uh, global solutions trying to take the best of benefits from across the globe. Diversifying the RAN ecosystem was also an uh, important priority for telecommunication industry, and, and Open RAN actually is enabling that. Driving standards that ensure security is very important, and I think policymakers need to focus on that. Sustainable mobile networks is very important. I mean, mobile networks do consume a lot of energy, and how the the policies can be uh, can be enabling such sustainable uh, mobile networks is important. In, is becoming increasingly important. Increasing participation from smaller companies and encouraging new innovation, particularly in the area of silicon, uh, is, is critical. Uh, silicon, as we know, is, is, is a dominated by a small set of very large uh, companies. How the silicon ecosystem can diversify is still unknown, and that's, that might require some kind of a governmental impetus. Uh, radio units also requires to be more diversified because these are uh, large manufacturing uh, and supply chain issues that needs to be solved. 
so some of these are some of the key areas for policymakers to consider. Now we are seeing several government initiatives around funding open RAN ecosystem and research, and so that's already a good sign. And we hope this would continue, and uh, and more and more policymakers would look at open RAN as an opportunity to innovate, uh, not just look at it as a cost uh, reduction enabler, but more of a of a economic enabler for larger larger ecosystems in the telecommunication market. Interesting. Um, how are those policy decisions developing um, in India? Because that's where you're calling us from today. Yes, so there has been uh, quite a bit of open RAN initiatives happening out of India as well, and there are certain operators who have uh, looked at open RAN and are trying to drive some of the some initial pilots. Uh, we have also seen uh, uh, the the policymakers also looking in at open RAN in a in a very different way as compared to uh, say. Uh, say earlier days, they're looking at open RAN in, in, in from the lens of it being uh, an impetus for local uh, companies to also contribute to radio networks. Uh, India has always been a hub for developing 5G and 4G radio network solutions, but it was mostly dominated as captives of very large network equipment providers. But this kind of a model actually enables uh, local Indian startups also to get into the radio network ecosystem, and that is already happening. We are seeing a fair amount of innovative startups coming up. Uh, system integrators based in India are also looking at Open RAN as an opportunity. So uh, the policymakers are only going to make it easier with the push towards more digitized uh, 5G networks. Fantastic. Well, watch this space then. Um, let's move on to the operator draw next, because this isn't just about using or not using certain vendors. How can operators reap the real benefits of Open RAN? Tell us more about the potential. Yes, that's a good question. I mean, uh, end of the day, Open RAN, if you look at it from, from an outside, it looks like a cost-saving measure, but it's not. It's not just cost-saving measures. Uh, we we discussed this a bit already about vendor diversity, about larger ecosystem, about cloud-scale operations and automation. These are key benefits to drive the cost down for radio network. Having said that, Open RAN also introduces the ability to observe radio network and collect telemetry. Now, this is a critical part. I'm, I, I, I had alluded to this earlier. When you collect data, this completely opens up the network on the way it can be managed or how even services can be developed. If I have more information and intelligence about the radio network, I can develop new kinds of applications which can open up new opportunities for an operator. And there is a concept in Open RAN called Radio Intelligent Controller, which brings in a platform for operators to differentiate. So data collected from networks and processed on the cloud can help operators increase and optimize radio capacity, for example. They can help in steering traffic introduce new kinds of network slices, uh, maybe improve spectral efficiencies, and even introduce specialized services for, for enterprises. So Open RAN is not just about cost enablement, but with better data collection and leveraging that data collected from the network, the operators can actually drive new use cases, which they cannot do today because they have no access to the data on the radio network. So in a way, this could also be an important platform for a larger ecosystem to come up with innovative solutions. Remember, over the years we have seen, whether it's in uh, in the case of mobile commerce, whether in the case of uh, smartphones, application ecosystems of smartphones, it's the best of innovation that made use of network as a platform happened outside the industry, outside the telecommunication industry. Uber used network as a platform to develop uh, 
a service which was not really feasible before 4G because it had reliable network in 4G and so they could do that. Similarly, if you start opening up the radio network and there's more data available and more possibility of configuring the, the radio network based on actual traffic, new kinds of use cases and completely new set of companies could come up. I, I might be might be jumping the gun already, but the potential is there. It depends a lot on how this ecosystem comes together and ensures that uh, such platforms are made available to the larger ecosystem. Let's see. Let's see how that that evolves. But the potential is definitely there. Indeed, yeah, it sounds like it is from what you're saying, and that would be incredibly exciting for, for the whole industry globally. Um, do you think, I mean, looking at the vendor landscape and just maybe kind of briefly and generalizing um, an assessment of it, do we have enough vendors in all the different um all the different you know pieces of kit and equipment that are needed for for digital deployments no yes no i would say uh, we are seeing a quite uh, a lot of baseband vendors the radio unit vendors are still limited but it's it's a complex area uh, we have uh, decent number of radio unit vendors as well. The baseband vendors are software companies are able to actually deliver baseband software given uh, they couldn't do it earlier because the RAN had to be a single box or a, a completely integrated solution. Now software companies can also provide baseband software. So that makes the, the, the ecosystem a little bigger and it's already quite diverse when it comes to these two areas. Uh, what perhaps still needs to be looked at is uh, the silicon ecosystem that is limited right now, uh, but more and more silicon vendors are, are are looking at open RAN as a as an opportunity for them. The cloud vendors are also very much, uh, I would say, limited in areas, with, particularly with large private cloud vendors and hyperscalers also joining the open RAN uh, ecosystem. Uh, but there could be more. There could be more when it comes to cloud vendors. On, on top of that, the, the area where a lot of system integrators are able to provide additional capabilities are in, this, in the orchestration and automation space. A lot of new companies are coming up in developing applications on leveraging the, uh, the artificial intelligence or the data collected out of the radio network. So in a way, the, the ecosystem can still grow. The application ecosystem is still nascent. The silicon ecosystem is, cons is constrained. Uh, but the rest of the ecosystem, I think, is pretty much uh, diverse and, and full of uh, energy right now. Well, that's a great snapshot. I'm sure it'll I'm sure it'll be of many use to um, to a lot of our listeners. Um, well, to conclude today, um, you mentioned sustainability um, and COP26 is still happening in Glasgow as we record this. Um, now, on the 8th of November, um, research from the Capgemini Research Institute um, was published saying that businesses must adopt circular economy models to meet consumer demands and mitigate future supply chain risks. Now, this is something that we hear about often, um, and it isn't necessarily always a sustainability story, but circular economy being transferred into telecoms, there seems to be a bit of a gap there. Um, so how can circular economy principles be applied to the telecoms and connectivity industry? And what role does Open Run play in that? Well, it's a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a difficult question in the sense that uh, circular economy may not be so easy for for telecommunication even though end of the day circular economy is all about production and consumption uh, the consumption model in in the telecommunication industry is pretty much 
in two parts, the B2C or where the consumers are, are consuming connectivity or enterprises who are consuming connectivity. Now, this in, in, a, uh, in, the, in the production model, this can actually uh, be a little more diverse in the sense that we could, uh, we could make use of better uh, sustainable technologies to build, to produce uh, the connectivity solutions. And we are seeing a lot of efforts going there on how we can reduce the carbon footprint for radio networks, how products can be built, which is more sustainable. Uh, how products can actually leverage a lot of uh, green uh, energy. So I think the, the model of production can really be made uh, better using Open RAN because it's a new area. A lot of policy involvement is there. A lot of policymakers involvement are, are there. And then at the same time, the products are being developed literally uh, as we speak. So there's a lot of possibility of being able to manage the the production model better. But when it comes to consumption, uh, the, the in 5G, we expect more consumers, not just consumers in terms of uh, people carrying mobile phones, but also industrial customers or industrial enterprises. They would be consuming a lot of connectivity on devices, on IoT use cases, on sensors, cars, planes, trains. All of them would be consuming connectivity. So this definitely increases the, the total energy consumption on the consumption side. But then there are some technologies that are driving lesser, uh, you know, uh, lesser energy consumption there. Uh, but I don't think it is fully solved as yet on the consumption side. The production side, I think there's a lot of focus. Um, and we, we will definitely see a lot of new innovation coming out in that space. GSMA has also has a climate uh, specific uh, initiative in place so we will i guess the if we can solve the production cycle first the consumption model can be solved later but eventually you're right not everything can be totally solved through a circular economy in this case it's still work in progress interesting that was a really fascinating answer sharing thank you um well we've covered a lot of things today um but it's kind of been a bit of a whistle-stop tour of a very complex subject um so before we wrap up the interview do you have a um a closing message or perhaps anything else that you'd like to raise well yes i mean uh thanks first of all for this opportunity and it was great talking to you uh, in general uh for a key set of messages from from an open ran perspective i think open ran has been too much focused on the economics i mean it's supposed to reduce the total cost of ownership yes but that is true but open ran's economics will be viable if volumes are rolled out the benefits of automation softwareized baseband open interfaces ai based differentiation the cloud scale can be best achieved if operators commit to mass rollout there will be initial efforts and expenses for integrating a solution. No open ecosystem can be integrated without a cost. I mean, it, it requires some amount of effort and money to integrate a solution, but the benefits will soon kick in as the as rollout scales. Uh, we also need to understand that Open RAN is a platform for innovating virtualized open disaggregated networks. And, and that would drive development of new use cases on radio network, which was so far not done. So the industry needs to come together. I think that's critical. The industry needs to come together to ensure that the basics work. The basics work across all the ecosystems. There is robust interoperability. We, we, do come, we do a lot of testing out of it, ensure that the, that the whole ecosystem and the security of the ecosystem is fully validated, and then 
common APIs are important to ensure that the scalability of the system continues to happen as more and more vendors join in. So there's a lot of things still needs to be done, but in general, all of these will come out if operators, all of this will make sense if the operators start to commit on mass rollout and commit for a 10 year, five year kind of a window for open RAN rollout. This will definitely invigorate the open RAN ecosystem and more and more vendors will come in. Excellent. Well, we look forward to um, to witnessing that happen and continue to develop over, over the short to midterm. Shamik, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fascinating to speak with you. Same here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to the team for bringing us the latest on all those stories. Thanks also to everybody who listened and huge thanks to Shamik for joining us today. We will be back in two weeks time with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, we won't leave you without updates. You can catch up with all the latest news from Capacity and Data Economy over at capacitymedia.com and also catch up on the recent magazine issues. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week, take care and catch you next time.